Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. I'm tired of big long articles. Let's do some small fun ones. Folklore.org, written by Andy Hertzfeld. Sound by Monday, September 1982. In August of 1982, plans for the IBM chip, or integrated Burl machine, fell apart, and Burl set about redesigning the Macintosh digital board, making significant improvements to its sound capabilities. All of the extra logic in the IBM chip had allowed Burl to implement four simultaneous channels of sound, each using a custom wavetable. This was too expensive to implement without the custom chip, but he was able to maintain the fundamental capability. DMA fetched sound using 8 bits per sample and a clever pulse-width modulated digital-to-analog converter. Burl figured that the Mac could still have the four simultaneous voices that he had envisioned, only now we would have to do most of the work in software rather than hardware. Burl promised Steve Jobs that the redesigned board would feature great sound, including a four-voice synthesizer. Steve approved spending an extra dollar per motherboard on an improved amplifier to better match the new sound capability. It was the summer of 1982, and there were still numerous parts of the Macintosh project that needed attention, like ensuring that the toolbox was in good enough shape for developers to start writing applications. Burl bugged me about writing a sound driver for his cherished four-voice engine, but I wasn't able to get around to it. A few weeks passed. Steve Jobs started to become impatient about hearing our new sound capability for himself. Finally, he pulled Burl and I aside late on a Friday afternoon. You told me that the new sound would be really great, right? He asked Burl. Well, if I don't hear great sound coming out of that prototype by Monday morning, we're going to remove the amplifier. Then Steve looked at me. You've had long enough to get the sound going. I want to hear great sound on Monday, or else. Then he stormed off, leaving Burl and I to figure out what to do. I think he's bluffing, I told Burl. But what if he's not? Burl did not seem very upset. In fact, he seemed kind of excited. I think he was pleased that Steve was on our case about the sound, since he really wanted me to write the sound routines as soon as possible anyway. He promised to buy me meals all weekend while we stayed at Apple to get the sound going. I had already written a basic diagnostic that generated a simple square wave, which certainly didn't meet anyone's criteria for great sound, but at least it told us the hardware was working. Burl wanted me to get to work right away on the four-voice synthesizer since he wasn't sure we could actually make that work. As usual, Burl's new design was very clever. The Macintosh was already continuously fetching data from memory to drive the video display, interleaving memory bandwidth between the display and processor in a fashion similar to the Apple II. But every 44 microseconds, there was a horizontal blanking interval where no video data was needed. So Burl used that time to fetch data for the sound. That gave us a sample rate of 22 kHz, which would allow us to reproduce frequencies up to 11 kHz, which wasn't too bad. The sound driver worked at the interrupt level, so sound generation could proceed in the background while the processor performed other tasks. 
It arranged to receive control at the beginning of the vertical blanking interval, which occurred every 16 milliseconds. It needed to generate all the sound data for the next 16 milliseconds, which worked out to 44 microseconds for every successive sample. If, for example, our calculation took 22 microseconds per sample, sound generation would be soaking up half of the available processor cycles. It only took a few hours to write a driver with a simple sound generation loop. While this initial code could achieve two simultaneous voices, it didn't run nearly fast enough to do four. It took too long to generate each sample, causing audible glitches and making everything else run like molasses. Burl looked at my code and saw that I was using some memory locations during the sound calculation. Memory? Are you kidding? You can't hit main memory. You'll never make it that way. You've got to do everything in the registers. Registers are special locations that are part of the CPU itself, where the action really happens. In the 68000, registers could be accessed four times faster than the separate chips that formed the main system memory. The problem was that there were only 16 registers. For each voice of sound, we needed a frequency, a waveform pointer, a position within the waveform, and an amplitude, plus some housekeeping data. There just weren't enough registers to do four voices. I was able to rewrite my sound driver so that it didn't touch main memory, but I ran out of registers and was only able to achieve three voices. But that wasn't good enough for Burl. By now, it was late on Saturday evening, and I wanted to go home. But he felt that we had to get the fourth voice done before head hits pillow, as he liked to say, or we would never get the fourth voice working. Registers were 32 bits long, and we were only doing 16-bit calculations. I was able to leverage this fact to make registers hold two different values. Each sample took about 22 microseconds to calculate so we were using roughly half of the CPU to get four simultaneous voices at the maximum sample rate. The basic four-voice capability was now ready, but we still needed an impressive demo to show it off. At around midnight, we agreed to return at noon the next day to work on the demo, and we headed home to sleep. The next day, we wrote a demo called Sound Lab that let the user control the pitch and waveform of the four independent voices. You could specify or edit a waveform by drawing with the mouse. Anybody who's ever drawn waveforms by hand can tell you it never sounds very good. The results didn't sound like music because there was no envelope shaping, but you could make very eerie sounding noises, which we deemed impressive enough. It was fun to be able to connect an oscilloscope to the sound output of the Mac, and then draw a waveform with the mouse and see it on the oscilloscope's screen. When Steve came in on Monday, he was pleased that we could demonstrate the four-voice capability and impressed that he could edit a waveform with the mouse and see it on the oscilloscope. But I don't think he was satisfied since he wanted high-quality music. There was a lot of potential in the Mac sound capability, 
but it would still take years and the efforts of many third-party developers to fully exploit it. Hey Andy and Burl, thank you from the bottom of my heart. The Macintosh was the only computer we had in the house that had any interesting sampled sound capabilities, and it's the primary reason I still have a passion for audio today. I spent many, many hours as a kid playing with SoundEdit. Welcome to Mac Recorder. And music packages like MusicWorks and Concertware, which used Burl's four-voice engine with 256 bytes of waveform data per voice. More interesting than plain square waves, but still rather tinny. And even at this level of sophistication, the Mac is basically unusable while the CPU is busy generating four channels of sound. If you had shown me Steve Capp's Studio Session and its playback of eight channels of real instrument samples back then, I probably would have fainted. Fun fact, Studio Session's playback engine is what powered the soundtrack to the official Macintosh version of Tetris. You can find the songs sitting alongside the Tetris application, and they open right up in Studio Session. Through BBSs, I would later discover that what I really wanted was an Amiga and its entirely hardware and DMA-driven sound, plus a copy of ProTracker. We had a few good mod players on the Mac, and one really terrible one, and I still have all the mods I collected from those days. You can download Andy Hertzfeld's SoundLab application from Macintosh Garden 
if you look for BS Disc 2, where you'll find it alongside Hendrix, which reacts to your mouse movement and clicks to approximate an insane guitar solo. And Talk Demo, which reads part of Apple's 16-page Newsweek advertising insert. Thanks for tuning in. You can find more stories at www.macfolkloreradio.com, or you can gab at me about old Mac stuff anytime by sending email to Derek, that's D-E-R-E-K, at macfolkloreradio.com. I really appreciate your reviews on iTunes. In the olden days, before 1984, not very many people used computers for a very good reason. Not very many people knew how, and not very many people wanted to learn. After all, in those days, it meant listening to your stomach growl while sitting through computer seminars, falling asleep over computer manuals, and staying awake nights memorizing commands so complicated, you'd have to be a computer to understand them. Then on a particularly bright day in Cupertino, California, some particularly bright engineers had a particularly bright idea. Since computers are so smart, wouldn't it make more sense to teach computers about people instead of teaching people about computers? So it was that those very engineers worked long days and nights and a few legal holidays teaching tiny silicon tips about people. How they make mistakes and change their minds. How they refer to file folders and save old phone numbers. How they labor for their livelihoods and doodle in their spare time. For the first time in recorded computer history, hardware engineers actually talked to software engineers in moderate tones of voice and both were united by a common goal. To build the most powerful, most transportable, most flexible, most versatile computer that not very much money could buy. And when the engineers were finally finished, they introduced us to a personal computer so personable it can practically shake hands. And so easy to use that most people already know how. They didn't call it the QZ190 or the Zip Tip 5000, they called it Macintosh. And now we'd like to introduce it to you.